Welcome to another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm the host of this sports podcast, Mitch Michaels. Delighted to have you with me where we have a lot of football into November to talk about. Kent Brown back on the show to talk college football, what he knows best. We break down all the upsets this past weekend with Alabama losing to LSU on the final play. Clemson down to Notre Dame and Georgia's big win over Tennessee to supplant them at number one. We talk about the playoff picture. We talk about some coaching drama. Big games this weekend. We're in the final stretch. Breaking all that down with Kent. And then we go to the NFL with Adam Musto returning to the show to talk Green Bay's bottomless pit. Justin Fields showing some flashes. Tyreek Hill taking over the receiving game. And a big win for the Jets, among other things. We look ahead to this Sunday's tilt and the Jeff Saturday coaching hire for the Indianapolis Colts. It's Adam Musto and Kent Brown on the Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. We're now joined here on the Money Mitch Effect by a friend of the show. Uh, always use that term loosely. He's got a lot of accolades. He actually hit 700 in a softball league, but Kent Brown's here on the show. Kent, thanks for coming to talk college football yet again. Yeah, everything changed in that softball league as soon as I figured out. As soon as I figured out, I was a lefty. It took a little while, but eventually I got there. So we're back to college football chaotic time zone, and I think it's great because we're going to get to the recap of just all the dead bodies that we saw. Uh, all the trunks that were open, you know, you open and saw some dead, you know, things in the trunk. But I use that as a metaphor to say it's been a couple of, uh, I'd say it's been a couple of years. I feel like I don't remember it being recently. Like this is a throwback to the college football chaos that we're kind of, that we've been used to. But I feel like we hadn't had one of these weekends in a long time where all these top seeds, all these upsets happened and really just shows you why it's probably the most expo- exciting sport in the country. It is just because there's so little games and every game at some level, the stakes are super high. I mean, when you look at the one negative of a 12-team playoff going forward is a Bama team like right now would still be in the 12-team playoff if Mm -hmm. they were to win out. Now they're out. Bama at this point, they're over. And that's one of the things where you start to look at the future and you say that will diminish the regular season Mm -hmm. a bit. Now, to be fair, would this team be good enough to win four playoff games probably not but part of the charm right now with the four-team playoff is michigan ohio state is a play in your win game look at this past weekend as you said clemson loses that pretty much knocks them out uh you look at lsu pretty much knocks the acc out (laughs) exactly notre dame now you're a quasi acc champion because they will have beaten both teams that play in the acc championship in december they should just move that game to like (laughs) cbs sports network (laughs) Yeah, or, or CBS Sports Network at like 11.30 a.m. kickoff or something. Yeah. But yeah, it was a great weekend. And there were vibes early the season of like, could this be a 2007 type of year where there's just a lot of chaos? I don't think we've quite gotten to that level yet, but we might get there within the next few weeks because November's shaping up for some big matchups and potentially some big upsets. You never really see the biggest of upsets happen until you're watching that game and you go, this team's losing, but if you look at it, there's about 10 teams left that justifiably are still in the playoff mix, and all, all 10 of those teams, for the most part, have some challenging games down the stretch, so mm-hmm. a lot can happen, and this past weekend was a great example of that. Yeah, I saw the one stat. It was November 30th, 2013, last time Clemson and Alabama lost on the same day, which it's been a minute, but it's also like, okay, well, obviously that was the rivalry game end of the year, the South Carolina-Auburn games collectively. 
Uh, I think that when you get to the mix and we're going to recap these games first, it's also great when you're maybe a team, a fan of a team that struggles at 9 a.m. in a windy Northwestern game that everybody just forgets about that because of all the upsets that have happened. Yeah, ultimately you get the win. I mean, it's college football is more than any sport where just find a way to win. Yeah. Very few people remember close wins, but everybody remembers the close loss. So, so true. And, Ohio and, and State, just to kind of say on that, too, I mean, we're, we're going to recognize Georgia as hands down the number one team in the country. They barely beat Mizzou. Like, that wasn't that long ago, but we were, we're moving onward and upward, to your point. Exactly, yeah. And, and that's the big thing is Ohio State's Northwestern. Look, it was a weird game. High wind. We know Ohio State's the more talented team. Clearly, Northwestern showed up on the defensive and offensive lines to even stay in that game. But overall, again, you just win. That's what matters. Now, if you lose a game, you better start having style points. Like even Tennessee right now, as much as we think their path is in, in solid shape, if Tennessee barely wins the next few weeks, then people will start doubting them more. But if they take care of business and they win every game by 14-plus, People are going to look at the Georgia game and say, a lot of people lose to Georgia. That happens. But if you start having – because I know this happened a few years back with Notre Dame when they had Deshaun Kaiser in 2015 where they were like a good team, but late in the season they barely beat Boston College. They kind of stumbled in a few games. And because they had that one loss, people were saying, well, they're looking more like they're not a playoff team. Right. But if you're undefeated and you keep sneaking these wins – people forgive you a lot and it's way easier to get in so it'll be it'll be a challenge for you know tennessee to come focus next week i am very interested in seeing how they react but i was also impressed the game going into this past week they showed up against kentucky and had that 44 to 6 win when anybody would have been fine with them winning by 10 but this week maybe you take mizzou in the first half or something like that just thinking tennessee might go through the motions a little bit at noon Eastern. Maybe they show up and win by 30, which would be a good sign. But as you as you said, Ohio State won the game. It wasn't pretty, certainly for C.J. Stroud. He's a guy that you'd want to see better numbers out of. To me, the bigger concern with Ohio State is this has now become kind of a trend in several of their games in that they can't run the football with consistency. Mm-hmm. And with Michigan, we know Michigan can run the football. And even though Ohio State's defense – is a lot better this year than it's yeah. been the past few seasons. We know I still would be shocked if Michigan doesn't run the ball pretty well against them. So for you guys, hey, nine is fine. Yeah. You probably are going to be eleven and zero going into uh, into Columbus against that Michigan game. But overall, <laughs> nobody remembers a twenty-one-seven win if you're nine and zero. I'm just laughing because despite all of uh, biases being subdued, we're talking Ohio State off the get-go with Michigan as well. Great point about Ohio State not being able to run the ball. It is a concern. You do love the fact that the defense under Knowles is there because that is the type of game that they would have lost the last couple of years if the offense isn't showing up early. Michigan, oddly enough, Kent, and just a quick note on them, I don't know what it is with the first half to second. They've been lights out in the second, but they've had some some stumbles early. Rutgers was close. Penn State obviously was a weird one. But like you said, you know they can run the ball, and they've, re, they've reloaded those DN positions that went to the NFL the Georgia-Tennessee game, just to kind of get into that in that area, I do want to give credit to Georgia for just handling the Tennessee offense. It was a masterful game plan. It was a great crowd, first of all, but it was taking away, like we were texting during the game, the big plays, the Hooker to Hyatt deep bombs just weren't there, forcing Tennessee to march down the field, getting some stout defense. I know the weather came into factor as well, but 
Georgia defense reminding that despite all the talent they've lost to the draft, Kent, they're still recruiting four and five stars at every position. They're loaded at all three levels. And they made life difficult for the guy who was the Heisman favorite going into this weekend. It was just a master class on the defensive side of the ball from the dogs. Yeah, all of a sudden you get big 88 back there in the middle of that defense, and it's a huge difference. And uh, you look at this Georgia defense, and as you said, they lost you know, five players in the first round. And that didn't even include N'Kobe Dean, who was their best defensive player. He was a Butkus winner last year. You know, he, of course, had some health issues, fell on the draft. And then Nolan Smith, who was a former number one overall recruit, is out for the season. But as I said, just getting back, Jalen Carter was huge. In the secondary, I like Georgia's strategy, and this is just the way they're going to play. They recruit five-star guys to be cornerbacks. That doesn't mean you can't beat Kylie Ringo. That doesn't mean you can't challenge their DBs. But they're going to get physical. They're going to hand fight you. Uh, They're probably going to get away with a lot of those calls. And frankly, I don't blame DBs in college for ever grabbing because referees usually allow it to happen. And Georgia, because they trust that secondary and they can play so much man, it just makes the job so much easier for the guys in the front seven to be able to blitz, to be able to get into the backfield. And you saw the Tennessee offensive line. You know, I think I saw a stat they had seven false starts. In that <laughs> they, game. they kept going back to back. I mean, uh, they had at least two. They had at least four of them on two separate instances, Kent, where it was back to back. So you just give away ten free yards. And remember, the opposite happened when Bama played Tennessee in Knoxville. It was Bama getting those false starts because of the crowd noise. So good on Georgia. A lot of people used to say that Sanford Stadium was not an amazing environment. It was definitely not on that list like LSU and so on. But I think with Herbie Smart and what he's done for that program, it's probably as good as home field advantage as they've ever had there at Georgia. And this was kind of a prove-it game in some way because, as you said, Georgia lost so much talent last year. They won 49-3 to week one, but at the time, I think everybody just looked at that as Oregon's not all that good. We now know Oregon's very good. But then on top of it, they were number three. Tennessee was number one. That was a game where I'm sure Kirby Smart certainly used that as motivation and said, guys, we're defending national champs. We haven't lost a game since. These people think they're better than you. What are you going to do about it? And Georgia showed up. And you have to give a lot of credit to Stetson Bennett as well because I think last year he was kind of a game manager for a lot of the season. And Georgia knew, yeah, you score 27 or third, we're going to be more than fine. In this game, Georgia's offense – was able to do what it wanted early. And then it became pretty evident in the second half. They were fine with killing the clock, knowing that Tennessee wasn't going to score 27 points or 24 points and match them. But Stetson Bennett's a good college quarterback. Yeah, he's not Drake May. He's not Bryce Young. He's not C.J. Stroud. But he might be a Heisman finalist when all is said and done. And when the guy needs to make a play, he seems to always come up with it. Remember, they were losing in the second half against Bama in the national championship game last year. And he made some deep plays. He made some plays with his legs in that game to help them win. Yes, he's not going to be a high-end NFL pick, but he also doesn't need to be. But I do think Georgia's offense, and if you look at advanced metrics, it kind of shows Georgia's offense is much better than people think. It's not Ohio State. It's not quite to that level. Uh, Probably not even to the Bo Nix and Oregon level at the moment. But I don't think they need to be that good in order to win a national title. Those are all good points, and with Stetson Bennett, he doesn't make mistakes, which is why Tennessee had a drop pick. I know they ended up getting a fumble on that first drive, but that was pretty much it for him. When Georgia gets a lead, you can tell that's the type of game they want to play. 
they're so smart with the football and they they deserve it. They are the number one team in the country. Their path to the playoff is relatively smooth, relatively I should say. Uh, that led into some of the other upsets. Uh, Alabama going down to LSU. Kent was the other big one. And before we get to LSU and their signature win, you mentioned it off the top, two Alabama losses. They're dead. They're out of the playoff picture. Uh, and in this case, I'll ask you this question. Is this the worst secondary savings had since it got rolling? It's right up there. Uh, I think there are some individual pieces that are solid. I look at a guy like Branch, who's a safety. He's probably going to be you know, a top 40 pick next year in the NFL draft. Uh, but overall, they do get beat quite a bit. And if you look at that second half against Jalen Daniels, I think the first half, both defenses outweighed the offenses. But when they needed to stop, they couldn't get it. And that's the same thing that happened in the Tennessee game. It was similar to the Texas game when Quinn Ewers was out there. After he got hurt, the Bama defense kind of rose up, but they were moving the ball easily when Ewers played. And then even A&M late in the game moved the ball and had that you know two-yard play that could have won that game. I'm not even willing to say like this is the end of some Bama dynasty or anything like that. No, but because they could have four losses this year, like you just outlined. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They're very close for, to four losses. They're also two plays away from being undefeated as well. <laughs> but, yeah, the secondary has issues. The offensive line has major issues. To me, that's the biggest issue of this Alabama team is you can generally pencil in Alabama is having a top three, worst case, a top five offensive line every year. This offensive line is probably not even top five in the SEC this season. And that's a big deal because you saw Bryce Young get hurt earlier in the year. A lot of that, to me, falls on the O-line. And because the offensive line's not as strong, they're not getting in second and three, third and two all that often. And that hurts the running game. And on top of it, without having those elite playmakers on the outside the way they've had the last seven, eight years. Now, all of a sudden, you're in obvious passing downs with a poor offensive line, for Alabama's sake. That pretty much means it's the Bryce Young show and not a whole lot else. And he's as good as he is. He's not, you know, and win a title. Last year, they almost got there. I think Bama played the best game they've ever played with Bryce Young in very vulnerable the last couple seasons. They have, and Bryce has covered up a lot. He's been a band-aid for a lot of lot of issues that they've had on both sides of the ball. And um, it might be LSU going away in that second half, but LSU goes for the win. And it's so funny because you know they they got blown out at home by Tennessee. They had that Florida State chaos game early, but Brian Kelly's already got his signature win. He did a tremendous job, and he and he went for the two in the win, Kent. Which, as I know you know. The same play he tried against Florida State years ago, but this time it comes through for him. But you got to give him credit, whatever. I mean, we make fun of him, the ridiculous Southern accent, all the stuff, all the drama, his media <laughs> lack of uh, you know camaraderie with the with the folks there. But he's a heck of a football coach, and he's already turning it around very nicely at LSU, given where they were last year. This is a signature win, but also one I feel like is going to be the stepping stone for something bigger. Yeah, and I thought week one they should have went for the two-point conversion against Florida State. If you remember that game, they had the game at the Superdome. They scored two touchdowns in like the final three minutes, and you thought, okay, you're down one final play. I just would have went for the two and said, no one's going to fault us in my first game with our roster overload if we try to go for the win right now, and instead they missed the uh, extra point. (laughs) But, man, I thought that it was the right decision. And I've generally, um, you know, I'm a believer of if you do have the least talented team and you believe in a play, try to go for the knockout punch. 
But Brian Kelly brought up a good point afterwards, which, you know, he said if you would have told me before the game we would have one play from that distance to win the game, I would do it 100 out of 100 times. And I'm glad in that moment for his sake that he remembered that and went for it because I won't say they had nothing to lose because that's not real. But even if they don't get it, that's still a hell of an effort by LSU. And people can say he believes in his players. And let's be real, when they went for it, I thought they were going to get it. I felt pretty good that they were going to find a way to get two points and win that game. And Jalen Daniels, man, Jaden Daniels, he has just stepped up his game. If you watch him at Arizona State, as a freshman, he was very good. And then year in and year out afterwards, he kind of got worse. And clearly a lot of that was coaching. Even early this year, he was up and down with LSU. But he's really found the good rhythm. I mean, they're starting two tackles on the offensive line that are true freshmen. I don't know, you know, how much you've watched all that all that closely with them on the defensive side, but Harold Perkins, their freshman linebacker who they stole away from Texas A&M late in the recruitment, he looks like he's an NFL linebacker already in terms of how good he is. So, there's a pretty good foundation of what LSU's doing and as you said, that's a huge statement game for LSU and it's going to build that program and Look, the last three national championships that LSU, LSU's won have been with their last three coaches. Clearly, Saban has proven himself elsewhere, but Brian Kelly's a much better coach than Ed O'Geron and Les Miles. Now, whether he wins a national title, we'll have to yeah. see, but I would say that things are off to about as good a start as you can hope for. And if they win out, I'm not so sure they will because I don't think they beat Georgia, but if they win out, they're going to be right in that playoff mix. And that is not a team that, Let's be real. About four weeks ago, we saw Tennessee beat them by four touchdowns in Baton Rouge. They didn't look like a playoff team then. And less than a month later, they're now beating Alabama, crushing Ole Miss. So it's a good testament to LSU and what they're doing there. And for Tiger Stadium, that was quite the game. And first time in 12 years they've beaten Bama in Baton Rouge. So it meant a lot to everybody in Louisiana. Wow, uh, LSU winning out would be in the playoff mix. Hard to believe, but I agree. If they if they were able to do it, they're in the discussion. Uh, Kent Brown here, Money Mitch effect. Last one to get to Notre Dame just putting on a beatdown of Clemson. I'll, I'll be I'll be honest. What shocked me the most wasn't that Notre Dame won this game, Ken. It was that it really had nothing to do with. I shouldn't say nothing to do, but it wasn't DJ playing a bad game. We're having this discussion of like why didn't they play the right quarterback? This was total domination on especially that defensive side of the ball. Notre Dame, the, Je- the the all-time Jekyll and Hyde team for this season and the last couple years. You really don't know if they play up or down to their competition, but for a big game, and this is you know a, another time this year where big game back against the wall, they showed out. So I think consistency might be the thing Marcus Freeman has to work on, but he's quickly proving that in big games, he can get the most out of his players. Yeah, it's funny. In the big games, they've rose up. It's those games where they're favored by you know 18 points 20 points that they seemingly don't and it's going to be interesting they play navy on saturday that's a triple option team and they're favored by right around that same number of 17 or 18 and then boston college on senior day you would think they'd be okay because boston college is so decimated with (laughs) you know they're moving defensive tackles to play (laughs) offensive line right now so i would hope they'd be okay but for notre dame in this game it was just really line play if you look at notre dame's offensive line They completely overwhelmed Clemson, and that's a Clemson team who every one of their starters on the D-line are going to be day one or day two draft picks in the NFL. That's a really good D-line that Clemson has, and Notre Dame kind of made them look like 
they eat egg white omelets <laughs> with just a little bit of oil and dry wheat toast. Like it was that type of D-line performance by Clemson. So I think overall, I mean, look, Notre Dame only passed for 85 yards and one receiver caught a ball. It was the rest of it was running backs and tight ends. And, you know, Mayer is their top option. But Notre Dame figured out pretty much early. We're going to get five, six yards of carry. We're going to be able to, you know, ground and pound. And that works for this Notre Dame team. That's their identity at the moment. I heard last week in the postgame presser when uh, Dino Babers, the Syracuse coach, basically said playing that Notre Dame team was almost like playing a triple option team where the receivers are blocking on the outside and they're just going to run the football as much as they can. And that's pretty much what they're doing at this moment. It's not optimal long term. I don't think that will be the offense Tommy Reese wants to run. But if it works in this type of game, it's great. And the other thing that this showed is it showed that Marcus Freeman can get his team not only up for this game, but to dominate and win against a top five team. We all know Clemson was probably overrated in theory, but mm-hmm. they still beat the number four team in the country. And they were up 28 nothing, 35 to seven, one by 21 points. That's something that Notre Dame hasn't done in quite some time. And it was a real statement game. And as you said, it's a game that Notre Dame is very much, we didn't know what team would show up. They've lost to Stanford. They lost to Marshall. They didn't look great against Cal or UNLV. Like, they've been pretty inconsistent. I guess the only thing we should know is when they play an ACC team, expect them to win that game. That's the only thing. I mean, it was a complete game, too, because even the uh, BYU game, they got a little lackadaisical at the end there. BYU made it close. So this was a good, complete game. I do want to – one last thing on Clemson before we get into the playoff picture. Do they just not have the quality of guys? Do you think there's a dip in talent? I mean, this is kind of a couple years now where we're looking at them as a good team, but maybe not a great team. Do you think the talent has come down to earth a little bit? I don't know, though, because on paper, well, part of it is the quarter. They don't have an all-generational first-team All-American quarterback the way they had with Watson and Trevor Lawrence, and even Taj Boyd before that was exceptional and was a really good, you know, All-American level guy. So that hurts. But Clemson, in terms of actual recruiting, they have way higher recruits now than they had when they won Mm. their national titles. But I do think it's development and coaching. If you look at Clemson, they had Brett Venables. He's not there anymore. They had Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott. Both of them are gone. Jeff Scott, maybe he comes back. He was just fired by, by USF this morning. So I have to think he's in that mix. So I think a lot of people are questioning Dabo hiring from within. I think I heard the other day that there's not one assistant coach on the entire Clemson offensive staff that has ever coached anywhere else in the, in the Power Five. So they've all only been at Clemson or they've been at smaller schools. That's not generally the way you want to run your team. Now, you can't tell Dabo Swinney what to do. The guy's won two national titles, and he's earned the right to put whatever staff he wants together. But my guess would be that the current coaching staff is probably not up to snuff the way it needs to be, the way Georgia is, and the way you're seeing a lot of other top teams across the country. And maybe he'll address that. Maybe he won't. The other thing is Clemson's been pretty much non-existent in the transfer portal. Uh, They've kind of been a team that says, we want our guys to stay here. We build our culture from within. The only transfer they brought in last year was Hunter Johnson, who was already previously at Clemson and then left (laughs) to go to Northwestern. So he was already kind of in the family. So I think that's a big part of it, too. I I think Clemson should look more into the transfer portal. And if you look at the outside, Mitch, they were having for years, if you looked at 
you know, Mike Williams. They had, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the other receivers, T. Higgins, uh, you know, Hopkins all those type of guys. That, yeah, and guys. Watkins before that. And now you look at their their wide receivers. There's not one wide receiver that scares you. And what's sad is, again, these guys were higher-ranked recruits than a Hunter Renfro or, you know, any guy like that. But they're just not developing. So I don't know if maybe at a position where Clemson might have to really look and say whether it's a high-end receiving coach, uh, even C.J. Spiller, the former NFL running back, he's the running back's coach now, never coached anywhere before Clemson. So that's probably their bigger issue. Mm-hmm. But when the quarterback's not an All-American top five, top ten pick, in all honesty, if you removed Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence from those Clemson teams, I'm not sure an average quarterback would have won the national title with the rest of those teams. And I think we're starting to see that where if, if it's not Cade Klubnick who becomes a superstar top 10 pick in two years, pretty good chance that Clemson might not get back in this title mix. Like right now, between Alabama and Clemson, I feel like Bama's one or two steps away from being right oh, yeah. back to where they need to be. Oh, yeah. I don't think Clemson's really anywhere and in I, and this I title mix. Good, I think that's a good point. I agree. I, I just think that the talent might be there in the classes, but they're not developing players and they don't have the skill beast guys that you quite frankly need at this level. And I, the coaching is a good point. I haven't really thought of, but I'm, I'm on the such the same page of you with the transfer portal. Like it's the new also way. Also look to, at offensive line. Yeah. Clemson, even when Clemson were at its best, Clemson would never get offensive linemen drafted. And that's an issue. And I mean, I watched, you know, the Notre Dame game very closely on Saturday night. And at no point was Clemson's offensive line, creating holes, opening things up. I think Will Shipley's a really talented running back. He didn't have a lot to work with. And so, as you said, I don't think that DJ was horrendous in this game, but it's not like the offensive line gave him all the time in the world that he can sit back and find an open receiver the way some other, you know, top five teams sort of have it most Mm -hmm. years. So Clemson dropped all the way to 12th in the rankings, which is just it's really really shows you what the AP thinks of them with Ole Miss at 11. And I want to get to the playoff picture right now because the rankings are going to be coming out in a little bit here, a day or so. And the way it, the way it's shaping up to be, Georgia at one, no argument there. You'd think Ohio State, Michigan, TCU would be the order with Tennessee five. Is that where we are right now? And then maybe Oregon six. Yeah, that sounds right. I guess there's a chance that the committee maybe puts TCU ahead of Michigan because the committee's still not necessarily completely sold on Michigan's out-of-conference schedule. But my guess would be Michigan goes to three, TCU is four. And then, yeah, Tennessee, I can't see how they fall further than five. I feel like that's that's where they'll be. It's funny. It's like TCU would be jumping four spots. And I I thought they should not have been as low as seven last week. But are are they going to jump four spots beating Texas Tech by ten at home? I mean – I don't know. I, I think four or five is fine for them. Four is fine for them. And, and I think we're kind of in that same boat where, you know, they're seven-point underdogs against Texas. I'm not expecting them to win out. But if they do, they're 100% in, obviously. They still have a shot if they go 12-1 and one to be in the mix because they have a lot of quality wins. They still are going to have some games down the stretch against some pretty good teams. And then the Big 12 championship game more than likely is going to be a solid opponent yeah. that they play, whether they're 11-1 and or 12-0. and Now, I'll say this. If they're 12-1 and without the conference title, that's going to be way harder to put them in, in my mind. I feel like you're probably better off losing this week, winning out, and then upending Texas or Baylor 
or Kansas State or whoever it is yeah. when you play them in Arlington. But they're in the mix. But yeah, if they go thirteen and zero, they're one hundred percent in, and they wouldn't even be the four seed. They would be a two or three seed, and they would get to avoid what is more than likely a, a thirteen and zero Georgia at that point. Because, I mean, yeah, uh, nothing's for certain. But I, I guess if we would just say the only two things right now, we had a pencil in, not pen. Um, you know, like if we're outside of slice and pint and an OC's brother comes in and we write in pencil our list, it would be Georgia and Ohio State would be or Georgia and the Ohio State Michigan winner, excuse me, would be the two that are in, and then we're looking at the last two. The undefeated Big Ten winner and Georgia presumably winning the SEC. Yeah, those two, even if Georgia trips up, they're pretty much in the same position they were last year, where they lost the SEC title game at twelve and zero and they just fell into that the the two versus okay. three game. Okay. I don't really see how that changes. So yeah, I'm with you. I think Georgia and now granted, we also are assuming Ohio State and Michigan are eleven and zero when they play, that okay. Georgia's twelve and zero when they get in. Yeah. But I think it's a fairly safe assumption. Those two things seem a little easier to manage when you look at who they're playing. And Michigan a week ago, you might have saw that Illinois game could be scary. I think we kind of saw who Illinois is. <laughs> not to say Illinois isn't better than Michigan State. But Illinois is also not a team that's probably going to win 11 games. <laughs> no. So, uh, no. so uh, and I bring that up because that would get us into that scenario where we have a bunch of teams potentially fighting for two spots that could include a one-loss Big 12 champion, a one-loss Pac-12 champion. Right now, Oregon has the preferential, based on the resume, treatment over teams like USC or UCLA who get to play each other, presumably to maybe play Oregon. You'd have Tennessee if they went out waiting in the wings. And then that Ohio State-Michigan loser if that game is close. So there's still a lot to be decided. And we're really going to be getting into resume season where, you know, the old days of Urban Meyer and Saban calling in Scott Van Pelt Sports Center immediately after the game to politic. I can see that. And it will be fascinating if the debate becomes which team lost by less points to Georgia. If it's Tennessee-Oregon. And look, I've already said pretty definitively and we have our group text with some of our friends we have our tennessee buddy sean sullivan who's on the show all the time and our buddy john rydell who's ohio state who kind of doesn't buy into the sec as much as that's fair as, as, as much as Sully might and he's saying well why would lsu not be ahead of tennessee if they want out and my argument is the more lsu wins the better it is for tennessee because at the end of the day if Tennessee goes 11-1, and one, and as I said, let's say they look good down the stretch, there's not like a Hendon Hooker injury or something catastrophic. If there are very good 11-1 and one, whose only loss is at Georgia, and they beat that LSU team by four touchdowns, they beat them by 27 points in Baton Rouge, I don't care if LSU is 11-2 with an SEC championship. They're not in over Tennessee, who's 11-1 and one at that point. Now, maybe all three get in somehow, which would be hilarious. That's possible. Yeah. But Tennessee... Because they dominated LSU on the road the way they did, if they go 10-2, and two, then yes, LSU could move ahead of them, but not an 11-1 and one Tennessee. So that's where the argument would be kind of funny. Uh, but you're right. If it's a one-loss Pac-12 teams, all of those teams will have pretty valid arguments. The one thing that does kind of suck, and it's unfortunate that Oregon lost by 46 the way they did to Georgia, if that game was just the same equivalent as what happened with Tennessee, they would be in much better shape. But the one thing that hurts Oregon is just getting blown out in that game. But I also hate, like, I want the committee to reward teams for playing good out-of-conference games. Like, for instance, Oregon right now, assuming everything else from week two on was the same as it's been, if Oregon just would have played, like, UTEP week one, 
they would be the number two or number three team in the country right now and easily win and you're in. And so I don't want the committee to not yeah. reward a team for playing Georgia, right. but you still have to show up and perform. You can't lose by 46. So yeah. as weird as it sounds, Oregon actually has the worst resume of the three potential teams in the Pac-12. Have they all won out? Because because that because of the forty six point loss. Yeah, I don't know though. I mean, I guess, but like they're they're getting the preferential treatment right now. But you're saying when it gets down to it, the tiebreaker won't go their way. Well, because that's a, yeah. that's a real damning yeah. sticking point with the committee. That I me- think I, I remember, think I believe with you. I think I agree with you when it, a USC where wins USC out, lost by one I, point. I think UCLA though. I don't know because again, if UCLA wins out and let's say they beat Oregon in a close game. They will have split the series and gotten kind of shellacked once, and they, their non-conference was terrible. A lot of that was because that Michigan game was canceled. So, I, I yeah, I do, saying, I do hope USC, the committee agree, though with you. Yeah, I think the committee will have to understand that it does suck for for UCLA, but they weren't the ones that canceled that game. So mm-hmm. it's like I understand maybe you could have tried to schedule like, hey, let's see if we can get Virginia in here now. Yeah. But ultimately, what are you going to do when that happens? But the one thing they would have going for them is, as you said, if they go and beat Oregon, they would kind of erase that loss. Remember, they didn't punt the entire game. So that they, they had some yeah, field goal yeah. drives. But they were okay against Oregon. Like, they got demolished. But the other thing that's funny is, if you're USC, you really don't have any quality wins to speak of at the moment. Like, USC's kind of skated by. They don't play Washington, and they don't play Oregon. And even though we've eliminated divisions in the Pac-12 this year, you still have the you still have that schedule where you're playing the five teams that would have been in your division and then the four crossovers. So for USC's sake, they avoid Washington, they avoid Oregon, and where UCLA had to play both of them. So what's going to be interesting is these last three weeks, though, USC has everything in front of them to really move up, uh, meaning they have UCLA in two weeks, they have Notre Dame in three weeks, and then if they win the UCLA game, and let's say they beat Notre Dame, now you'll be playing either the Utah team that you lost to, or you'll be playing the Oregon team that you haven't played. If they go 12-1, and one, they're going to be in pretty good shape to uh, at least be very much in the argument. But the problem is, with that defense, do you think they're actually going to go and beat UCLA and beat Notre Dame mm-hmm. and beat Utah and Oregon? I would say out of the three, I feel pretty much out of the three teams that are in the playoff mix in the Pac-12, yeah. USC to me is the team I feel most likely – is going to fall off right, but there's your, rather than later. Yeah, there's your doomsday scenario for the Pac-12. USC's one loss left is Notre Dame, but they beat the, all the Pac-12 teams. That well, really that, yeah. If that's <laughs> really the case, the Pac-12's out. Yeah, would be really funny and very possible. Uh, this was good. We still have a lot to discuss. A couple things before I let you go. Kent Brown, just some games this week. Not the biggest slate as we all kind of catch our breath and make that final push. But any worry for LSU, only minus three going to Arkansas, noon Eastern kickoff time. Yeah, of course. I think that it's going to be a close game, and it's very similar kind of to when the spread came out a couple weeks ago and LSU was a slight favorite against undefeated Ole Miss. It was sort of the same vibe of like, well, wait a second. Why is this team who's ranked this high an underdog or at least barely favored? I think, again, LSU's had a great season. It wouldn't be shocking if LSU loses that game. Now, the one backdoor Alabama has going for it is if Bama beats Ole Miss and LSU loses both of their remaining SEC games, that is how Bama could end up back in the SEC title game. But as long as they beat one of A&M 
for Arkansas. They are in that game uh, as long as – well, I guess if they lose one more and Ole Miss wins out, Ole Miss would actually yeah. be the SEC West team. Ole and that Miss, Ole Miss yeah. is not out of the hunt either. But yeah, I would say at home, but I think that's a lot of points. But they can score on Bama. I mean, that's – you know, I don't know if they win, but – we were just talking about Bama's secondary, and I think Ole Miss is going to be able to put up points. Well, Ole Miss is still a run-first team, though. So that's where I think Bama will be at a slight advantage is that if Ole Miss was maybe the Lane Kiffin team from last year with Matt Corral where they kind of passed the ball more, mm-hmm. I'd be a bit worried. But, hey, at this point, Ole Miss has proven that they're more than good enough to stick around, and Alabama's proven that it's probably going to be a four-quarter game that goes down to the last <laughs> couple plays. Yeah. But yeah, I would say a little bit of concern for sure with LSU as a barely a favorite. And, and and by the way, if you look this week, there's a couple scenarios like that. Like North Carolina is eight and one; they're an underdog against Wake Forest. You have TCU is nine and zero; they're a touchdown underdog against Texas. Uh, you know, even Baylor's a favorite against Kansas Do you think State. Texas and takes game, out TCU. It's hard to it's hard to believe in Texas. I just uh, <laughs> I don't like I'll, I don't like the points. I don't I don't like the seven touchdown. Like what if they what is seven win Sark as I've been calling him proven to cover a spread? Yeah, I'll take the points in that game. Uh, that's actually something I probably should get on now because you think it will probably go down at least a half a point mm-hmm. from now until game time. But yeah, I would take the points with TCU, and you're probably in good shape to either. You know, win on the money line if you do it that way, or at least cover. I just, yeah, Texas is one of those programs to me. Until I see them be consistent and do it a full season or at least eight straight weeks, I'm not going to pick them to beat a nine and zero team. Now, again, would it be shocking if they win the game? No, I don't think so. But I'm not going to be the one that says that they'll win that. I'll say that TCU does win that game. The last two things I wanted to get to with you, Ken, are just programs and disarray, I guess, different levels of it. And one being, you know, your Hurricanes, where are we at with, with the Canes and, and their state of uh, Mario Cristobal's first year? I've been willing to just kind of move on from this season and look at the future and hope that what they're building away from the field with the resources that they're putting in the football, with the recruiting that's been better, with uh, – a lot of the foundation stuff that the top programs in the country have had 10, 15 years ago. Miami's just starting to kind of get that the past like 10 to 15 months. But this season's been a total disaster on the field. And look, I understand that I didn't think this team was going to be 11 and one or even 10 and two, but I thought they would be maybe second place in the division and, you know, nine and three or eight and four was very possible. And instead, they're probably looking like five and seven or maybe six and six at best. And that's been a disappointment, but uh, I would be surprised. I'll be a bit more worried if there aren't new coordinators next year and there aren't some real changes with the roster, with the staff. Uh, But overall, you can't really say that, well, Miami's going through growing pains. It's fine (laughs) when Duke is bowl eligible this year. When Brian Kelly's doing what he did, what he's done in year one, when he took over a roster that was like 45 players deep after their bowl game. So Mario Cristobal has to do better on the field and he has to develop players better and get more out of it. It actually is funny, though. My older brother, who very much is doubting this program right now, (laughs) he was actually in Boulder, Colorado last weekend and him and his wife went to the Colorado, Oregon game. 
uh, just because he's never been to Folsom Field and wanted to check it out. And he did say, he goes, this is the first time in at least a month I've been more optimistic in Miami because I saw Oregon's team in person and they were big and fast and strong and athletic. And he's like, if that's the team Miami has in a couple years, then I'm going to be a lot happier because that's a real football team. (laughs) And I said, yeah, I think that's what you'll see. Like what Oregon is right now, I think that's what Miami will be in a couple years. They're just not there yet. But this season's been, you know, if you're grading it on the field, it's an F. Everything off the field for me is like an A- minus or an A. And I'm hoping the off the field stuff starts to manufacture some, you know, a much better team. If they're five and four next year after nine games or four and five, then my mindset will start to really change. But I don't think that that will happen. So I'm just willing to kind of say, forget the past, look into the future. Uh, because it is year one, and I do think there's more issues with this current roster than a lot of people probably expected. The last thing I would ask you is if you were an AM booster, would you just be trying to hire private investigators to figure out a way to get out of a buyout, <laughs> to get out of a contract? Yeah, that or do some sort of intimidation tactics with Jimbo. It's crazy the same how way bad Florida. That year's been. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, see, and he's year five. So that's where A&M's situation is different. And the other thing, too, is I know he had that really good year in the COVID year, but the COVID year was weird by many aspects. And I also think if you look a little bit closer with the SEC West that year, the SEC West was pretty weak in that COVID year where it was kind of a dominant Bama, you know, and then a kind of a bunch of average teams the rest of the way, except for A&M who rose up. But besides that one COVID year, they've been below 500 with Jimbo in the SEC. And that's not good enough back in the Dennis Franchione era. That's not good enough. You know, when you were Kevin Sumlin, that's not good enough for any A&M coach. And uh, Jimbo Fisher getting paid to win national titles. And like the same way that Brian Kelly kind of made that statement Saturday night, I think that's what Jimbo Fisher needs to be doing more of. So, yeah, if I was an A&M booster, it would be pretty disheartening. And, you know, I went there this year right after they lost to App State and they close, low-scoring game against Miami, but they got the win. Everything is there in College Station to be a high-end national championship-level program. And yet Jimbo Fisher just, for some reason, is not getting it going. And uh, when you get a recruiting class the way they did, 18 of the top 100 players in the country last year and like seven five stars I believe you have to produce a bit more if they're not if they're not a top five top 10 team like if they're not in the playoff mix a year from today then I think Jimbo's out like I don't see him making it past another year if they're not in the playoff mix deep in the next season because at that point it's I, I think everything that needs to be seen has been seen I think you do give this recruiting class a couple years to see what Jimbo can do with them. But he's also a guy, much like what I said with Cristobal, where you have to see if he changes up how he coordinates. I mean, you look at him, he has those 45 sheets in front of him <laughs> with, you know, intricate yep. offensive play calling. Yep. And then you look what Heupel's done at Tennessee. It's a much more simple offense. It's a much more player-friendly offense. You're not thinking as much. You can get players that come in on the transfer portal or freshmen that can shine. And at A&M, Nobody there looks the part where I have a feeling if you took these pieces on A&M's offense and you put them in Ohio State's offense or Tennessee's offense or TCU's offense with Sonny Dykes right now, 
those guys would look like they would look like superstars, and instead they're just kind of lost in the shuffle with A and M. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's been a bad year for Jimbo, and I think next year, like he co- he goes in on the biggest hot seat there is for any major coach. Can't wait to see that one to see if Jimbo survives. We got a great football season still winding down, the playoff picture heating up. Kent Brown, pleasure having you on the show. Good luck uh, with all your bets going forward, and uh, have fun uh, with your other favorite hobby, uh, the pitching machine, but we won't get into that on this show. Yeah, that and, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I want to make sure to not not spend too much time with Colby Covington, apparently. (laughs) No, hands where I can see him. All right, Kent Brown, thanks for coming on. All right, huge thanks to Kent Brown, and we did record that before the playoff ranking came out. So just a quick recap. It's Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, TCU in the four spot with Tennessee five. No surprises there. Oregon is six, followed by LSU with two losses risen from the dead. It's USC, Alabama, and Clemson down at 10. Ole Miss and UCLA rounding it out. So there's your playoff picture. The Pac-12, kind of the pecking order like we predicted. Tennessee still in the mix. LSU alive. Clemson kind of left for dead. Going to be a wild couple weeks here. Can't wait to see how it shakes out. Now we go to the pro game with Adam Musto talking NFL. The Colts hiring Jeff Saturday. What that was all about. The uh, struggling uh, AFC West outside the Chiefs who were able to beat the Titans. They clawed their way to a victory there. And we break down all the NFL news and notes heading into another jam-packed slate of games. It's Adam Musto talking NFL here on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now here on the Money Mitch Effect, talking some football. Still an interesting time, nine weeks into the season, past the halfway mark. It's Adam Musto. Adam, thanks for coming back into the program as we continue our search to find uh, a couple of good NFL teams. Yeah, and you know, even if you break down by conference, I feel like there's a little bit of disparity. But yeah, since you know, I was on a few weeks, it was a week two, I think, or after week one or two, teams definitely are starting to kind of separate from the pack, and I think everything is kind of regressing to the mean or you're just kind of figuring out, you know, who's for real and who's not. I want to start, I mean, there's a couple of different ways we can start, but I want to start with the team that had the most impressive win this weekend, in my opinion, that was the New York Jets beating the Buffalo Bills. Jets win this game. They uh, come alive late down the stretch. They do it with a run-heavy game and a defense that under Salah is just continuing to fight, now 6-3 and three on the season holding Josh Allen, who may be a little banged up with the arm situation, but they limited this Bills offense that has receiving weapons. They have the dynamic quarterback. They've had a good line. Jets pushed them around, held them to 17 points, three in the second half for a team that didn't have any expectations in a division with several other good teams. Adam, the Jets are 6-3 and three and looking very much like a proper outfit in the, NH- in the NFL. Yeah, and I was definitely one that I was – pretty late to jump on the Jets bandwagon. Um, you know, they lost last week to the Patriots and that kind of felt like, okay, maybe they're a little bit more, you know, not as, uh, let's not believe the hype, but yeah, they've had some big wins and, you know, Robert Sala, I think the team is a believer there. Obviously they've had some wins where Zach Wilson's looked, you know, very mediocre, but, but, you know, I think for a young quarterback still developing and yeah, I mean, that was a huge upset for me. I wouldn't have expected Buffalo to lose. Um, you know, going into, I think, next week against the Vikings, we kind of figured they'd both be one loss teams. So, yeah, big win. And, you know, if it is a nagging injury for Josh Allen, that could definitely be tr- trouble for them as well. 
Yeah, it's, you know, he admitted that he played bad. I don't want to put it all on the injury, especially because Josh Allen didn't put it all on the injury. But that's two division losses for them. A, a team that, after the Chiefs win, we just kind of assumed that it would be, you know, rosy and they're the top seed now. It doesn't necessarily work that way. I think, to be fair, though, I know the division losses are concerning, though they were on the road in both Miami and New York's cases. But this does tend to happen. Like even right, like even Adam, those Patriots seasons where they were just consistently a one or a two seed, they would throw in some games that they lost. They didn't, you know, always go fourteen and two in the sixteen game schedule. So I'm not real. I'm not willing to just overreact quite yet for just their second loss in eight games. Yeah, and I feel like the Patriots would lose. I mean, obviously Brady had great records. I think specifically against the Bills, right? I think was his best opponent. But yeah, I feel like they'd always randomly drop a game late in the season at Miami or at New York or even at home. So, yeah, I mean, the good teams figure it out. They have a tough game coming up against Minnesota, but, you know, some other winnable games down the, down the stretch. But they are, you know, a division with four teams with winning records is pretty surprising. And, you know, so it's not – I think that was one benefit maybe that the Patriots did have for a few years where, you know, there was a lot of other mediocre teams in the AFC East. But, you know, we were all in for Dolphins when they started 3-0. and And, you know, even the Patriots are still kind of hanging tough in there. They are the Patriots get their uh, win over the Colts. It doesn't look like the Sam Ellinger experiments going. And, and the Dolphins, and we'll, we'll get to that because this is your game, the Chicago Bears. Uh, Dolphins beat the Bears. More on the Bears in a second. But the Dolphins offense, when Tua plays, looks pretty dynamic. And it's funny to think that if he was healthy, what would their record be? They're 6-3 and three with him not playing all those games. But 35 points again. Tua goes for 300 yards and, and three touchdowns and is doing better at limiting mistakes. I don't think this is a perfect team. They have flaws. Tua is you know, primed to make some mistakes here or there. But they are, I would say, frisky, for lack of a better word. That's like the cliche word that I've been thinking of, that this team can put up points, plays fast, and Adam Tyreek Hill has 1,000 yards in just nine games. Yeah, it's crazy what he's on, on pace for. I mean, I think him and both, both him and uh, Waddle are... are top five, I think, in receiving. Yeah, it's crazy, especially in a year where we have seen more defensive or lower-scoring lower games. I mean, this week there was only four teams that scored 30 points, and the Dolphins were one of them. The Bears, I guess, with the hard luck loss being another one of them. And, and I was also one, I came into the season still wanting to, to show me some things before I was really all in on him. Um, but we did obviously see a big disparity when he was out, and we didn't know if the Dolphins were going to come crashing down um, after the hot start. But, yeah, I think he's having a marvelous season. They're both top five, Waddle five, Hill one, with 1,104 yards receiving. Nobody else higher than 867, which is Jefferson Jefferson at two. Just remarkable stuff. We'll see. I mean, that division's not going to be easy for any of them. The Patriots looking like they're bouncing back. The Jets at six and three, and the Bills we know. That's going to be a fun one as we got to get to seven playoff teams. We expect multiple in the AFC East now. And... Looking at it from the other side, Adam, the Bears may have lost this game, but I don't have to tell you what the takeaway is. It looks like there may be a promising Justin Fields uh, renaissance taking place. The last couple weeks, armed by the fact that they do add Claypool in the trade deadline, but also the fact that they're kind of building the offense more, more around his legs and his ability as an athlete, suddenly there's some optimism here, right, about Justin Fields going forward? Yeah, they've averaged about 30 points a game in the last three three weeks so I think that's what Bears fans at least wanted to see I mean I think the story coming into the season was that it was kind of going to be not necessarily a rebuild but you know not 
a team that was going to make a run. And yeah, it was absolutely just trying to develop Justin Fields. And there was some, you know, games where he barely scratched a hundred yards passing. Um, and even, you know, his, he, I think, you know, he had three touchdowns or four total touchdowns, but yeah, this was, I think a huge game for him. You obviously want to see it being done consistently, but proving that, you know, even if you're not going to throw for 300 yards, um, you know, you can still do it on the ground. And that's kind of almost what the Ravens did a few years ago, you know, and, and they've, their offense obviously revolves around Lamar Jackson. I guess that's what you're going for in a way, but I think that's what you want to see, you know, how he is as a passer. I think the, the jury is still out, but I feel like you really can't coach or find really, you know, a lot of players in the world that have that athleticism, which can really be a game changer, especially in today's NFL. So for your outlook for this Bears team, I think has to be intriguing. I won't go too far. I mean, the defense has not looked good recently, but it's nice to just have something to maybe say, okay, there's some, there's some hope there. And it coincides with, I don't want to say the end, but the fall of the Packers dynasty, because it's just been a disaster and it's gotten worse and worse. I don't think we can go any lower, but nine points against the Lions who defensively have been getting you know, abused by most teams. It hasn't looked good. It's partly Rodgers, partly the receiving core, partly the fact that they don't make any additions and they're just stuck with the same talent that they have. And LaFour's got to bear a lot of this. But this is as low as it's gotten. I, I would argue in the Aaron Rodgers run, 16 years, it has not hit a lower point than what we saw on Sunday. Yeah, I don't think so. And, you know, I was always waiting for them to make their – late season run, you know, after they had the week one loss against the Vikings, it always seems like that, that happened. And it, yeah, it, I mean, you know, we were obviously earlier talking about the Jets, they're surprising people, but when you look at losses against the, the Lions and Washington and, you know, the Giants are also one of the surprise teams, I think in the beginning of the season, you would have definitely chalked that up as a pretty easy win for Green Bay. It, it, yeah, it, it's super surprising. You know, there is still room, obviously, with a somewhat weak, NFC that you know they could still go on a run I'm I'm not going to count them out yet they play the Bears week 13 if the Bears can win that one that would be a nice little yeah like exactly what you said how I feel like that's definitely the mood in Chicago that it's like okay this is the end of the Packers to the start for the Bears but you know a big win like that down the line would, would be a nice cap to the season as well. Adam Musto here on the Money Mitch effect it's it's not been good for the Packers uh it's been terrible for the Rams, and I would have said the same thing about the Bucks, but the Bucks do pull that game out. Um, so for the Bucks, I mean, as bad as it went offensively, for at least two minutes it, or less than one, it was like the Tom Brady of old, and the Bucks going down. And you know, now it's funny how it, an outcome changes. They're in an awful division by relative NFL standards, and yet here they are with that win, maybe salvaging some hope for making the playoffs. I still think they have a lot of flaws offensively. The line keeps getting pushed around, but for at least one minute, it looked like Tom Brady from the old days. Yeah, I think after the fourth down stop, yeah, you know, around the two minute warning, that was. I feel like most people thought, okay, well, this game's definitely over. Um, but yeah, that was just I think vintage, just you know, working the clock perfectly, not being out, managing timeouts, clock management, all that stuff. So I was not expecting that last drive, at least especially when the Rams had the ball. I figured they would just you know it was just kind of a formality running out the clock. But yeah, and I guess it does kind of show that, you know, one game can make a huge difference. Yeah, and especially, you know, Atlanta looked like they were going to go on a little bit of a run, but I feel like they're still kind of in that, you know, up one week, down one week, kind of, you know, still figuring out how to win consistently. So, 
that could be the case. I guess it'll be interesting. It does seem more recently there's always been, you know, a, a 500 team or even obviously teams under 500 make the playoffs. And it always feels a little different when you have one with a ton of playoff experience, though. Why are the Rams, I guess, not just so, not just poor, but so poor? And I mean, I guess I didn't understand that they had as many glaring flaws, right? Like, it's not just the line. It's the line. It's the lack of skill, guys. It's a secondary that has been getting torched on occasion. It's a pass rush without Aaron Donald hasn't existed. I guess why have all these problems, Adam, just kind of came to the surface at the exact same time? Yeah, it's kind of weird. You know, you know. I guess I was not always, I feel like I've said this before, I was not always the biggest Matt Stafford fan. I was probably wrong on a lot of that just because when you are with Detroit for a while, it does kind of, it does kind of lower, I guess, the play around you. I mean, Allen Robinson, I think for the most part has been a, a pretty big flop for them. Um, I don't know how much of that was just going all in last season with, you know, we're going to make a run almost like that, you know, 97 Marlins team. <laughs> Sorry to bring up the, yeah, uh, the that was a little uncalled for, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was even thinking about that. I just, um, but, you know, it did almost feel like it was this team that was kind of put together like, oh, yeah, we'll just add some pieces. It was kind of crazy that everyone didn't do that. I mean, I don't know how much of a factor not having Von Miller or, you know, Odell Beckham this year has played. But I, I don't know. I, it's weird, too, because I feel like with Sean McVay, you still kind of have a pretty solid baseline where you feel like you're not just going to totally fall off the, the ledge. Yeah, and maybe winning. I mean, that's part of it, too, right? They won a Super Bowl. They're not quite as hungry. Um, I guess Beckham being a big factor for their offense hurt as did a guy like Robert Woods. I know he was injured during it, but for whatever reason, the pieces haven't gelled. And when you can't run the football, which they clearly can't bad things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so that NFC West is, is maybe the most fascinating to me, Adam, because the, the Seahawks are six and three and probably uh, you have the Niners who, you know, make that trade for McCaffrey. They play the chiefs week one where they get shellacked, but there are a lot of people's picks still to win the division with the Seahawks having the advantage record-wise, though the Niners won that game when they played earlier this year. So it's gearing up for a two-team race with the Cardinals going south, but looking at it from your perspective, you know, four and four versus six and three, do the Niners make that push? Do you see them kind of stepping up and overtaking the Seahawks, or is Geno Smith for real, and are these Seahawks going to improbably win the NFC West? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a million-dollar question because you have with Jimmy Garoppolo. I feel like he's still kind of a stabilizing force. I mean, I'm a little biased toward him because he grew up, you know, close to where I grew up. So I always kind of root for local guys in, in that sense. But and with Geno Smith, you know, I feel like obviously we felt like we saw everything that he had. Um, especially he was the one that was uh, that Eli Manning was benched for, right? A few like the only start that Eli Manning missed during mm -hmm. his career. That's correct. And that was like the whole. And that was like the whole thing where it's like, well, we know who Gino is. So what, you know, what are we about? Why are we ending this, you know, historic streak or, you know, someone who's meant so much right. for the franchise. But, you know, it's been a great resurrection for him. I think San Francisco will still be there just because, I, I don't know, it just feels like Jimmy Garoppolo still wins games, even if it's in unorthodox ways. Obviously, he's not the whole team, um, but it, it would be different, you know, when Trey Lance went down, if they had some random, you know, third string quarterback or someone who, you know, was just a young guy who was tr trying to, for, you know, someone off the practice squad. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they can overtake them. I feel like, you know, Seattle has a good good pieces in place as long as Gino can kind of play consistently. But it, it does seem a little bit more sustainable in Seattle. 
It does. They're hungry. They have a lot to prove, all those cliches. But for Geno Smith, he's been around, and he knows this is probably the last best opportunity he has. Uh, the defenses look good, and Pete Carroll is just a heck of a coach. I think he's proven that too. So I'm not I'm not writing in, in marker of the Niners, especially that they have some ground to make up. I think they deserve to be the team that's looked at more favorably. You saw what McCaffrey can do, but it's yeah. going to be fascinating. Uh, Adam Musto here on the Money Mitch Effect. Can I say, too, like one of the best coaching jobs I've seen the last few weeks, I don't know if you agree, but what Mike Vrabel's done, just keeping his teams competitive with a quarterback that isn't anywhere near ready to play. I mean, they threw five. He had five completed passes in that game, did Willis, and Vrabel just won't let his team show up unprepared or uninterested. You know, he bullies them into into showing up, but um, the Titans, you know, gave the Chiefs all that they had. It took Mahomes digging deep into the recesses of a great player to – pull that out I was equally impressed with the Titans in terms of their fight as I was with the Chiefs that are just comfortable in these close games no matter how how many times we've seen it it just seems like Mahomes is comfortable and able to make the plays when it matters yeah I mean you know Mahomes almost threw 70 passes and he had 68 um officially officially so yeah and, and the Titans are I feel like with Rabel it is a little difficult because he's always been you know for the most part it's been you kind of knew you know, who at least who Ryan Tannehill was almost kind of what the Chiefs were, I would say maybe before with Alex Smith in a way before you had Mahomes where they, you know, they could be totally focused at quarterback. Um, maybe similar in a way almost to the year that Tyrod Taylor led the Bills, or not led, but when the Bills made the playoffs, I think before Josh Allen, I think was still under uh, uh, Sean McDermott as yeah. a coach. So, um, yeah, I feel like they're going to be there. That's, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I don't know if it, It'll be tough to maintain, I think. Um, I don't know the exact timeline on Tannehill coming back. but And obviously, you know, Malik Willis as a third rounder, he's kind of in that range where I feel like he, he probably wasn't, you know, the true franchise quarterback, but more than just kind of taking a flyer on a guy um, in the sixth round. And I feel like there was, a, between him and Pickett, they were even in a quarterback week draft. They were still kind of got two of the, you know, headliners of the mm-hmm. draft at least. So I feel like he's going to be there. He's not just kind of like a random guy. He's like, oh, I, you know, if, if you would maybe only know him if you, college team or something like that it's uh it's very fascinating to how the afc west just never materialized like the broncos went in disarray the raiders look even worse than the broncos somehow and uh i think the chargers are there we're still not taking them seriously but that's you know it's weird though because like that's a bigger bigger take like the way the nfl is the eagles were undefeated you know they had the thursday night game and some time off but the Chargers and Vikings, I mean, the Vikings are 7-1 and one now. They just keep winning games, yet I think we're all like, well, it's Kirk Cousins, it's the Vikings, you know, we know what they do. And and that's not, like, necessarily wrong, even with the Chargers, Adam, but maybe this is the year where there's just not teams around them, there's not the proven commodities, it's a down year. I'd say if it's ever going to happen for those teams or, or other ones, even Dallas, why wouldn't it be this year when it's, you know, the least likely field to stop them? For sure, Um and also, yeah, talking about kind of what you're saying about the AFC West, too, it is interesting because I feel like we definitely talked about in the beginning of the season where we thought every single game should put it in prime time. And then looking at the schedule, what happened? I mean, they were actually somewhat competitive games, but we did have back-to-back Monday night games, week five and six, I think, between the Raiders, Chiefs, and then the uh, Broncos, Chargers. And then I feel like at that point, it was just kind of a, oh, okay, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of pipe coming in. So, yeah, it is kind of a... You know, I know the Vikings maybe get a little bit of slack for, you know, some people saying, oh, they're not, you know, that great for their record. Um, but you can kind of fly under the radar. I think it is interesting just because, yeah, there are so many, like, Super Bowl favorites 
in the AFC, um, especially Buffalo, figure out what happens with Josh Allen. But someone still has to, you know, someone is still going to be representing the NFC in the Super Bowl. And I think looking back historically, there's been definitely times where, you know, that, that top team, when, when you get to the Super Bowl, you know, even maybe Patriots, Eagles, or definitely going back to like 84, 49ers, Dolphins and stuff, yeah. um, where, where it is kind of a surprise once you kind of even, you know, get to the Super Bowl. Yeah, the Eagles are in a new territory. Uh, Cowboys haven't exactly handled expectations either. So Vikings are going to be out there. They keep winning, and it's fascinating there. I'm also going to need at some point, you're, you know, with the Xavier McKinney news, getting hurt on the ATV accident. I'm going to need the the uh, you know the top five historical off field injuries during a season. Uh, my first thought is basketball. I feel like I think now they put contracts right in place to not play uh, and pick up basketball games. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, well, it's a big it's a big loss for them. Obviously, I mean it's you know we make light of it, but it's it's going to be a big loss for a giant team that's overachieved. But yeah, I don't know. I, I will say, too, I mean, we're talking about the power rankings and the indexes of teams that we think are, are legit or not legit. you gotta, you got to remember the Baltimore Ravens. Um, that was an interesting stat, by the way. Nine games this year, right? I think they've they've played uh, nine. They're six and three. They're the first team, if it's not ever, it's a long time. Double-digit leads in every one of their games. So they they have a system that works, and three of those games they blew, but, you know, they're they're starting to do better holding that lead. And I think they are going to be throwing their hat in the race for a contender. Very, very soon. Yeah. I, yeah. Cause even, you know, I feel like yesterday's game, it was kind of like, okay, they'll probably win. And, you know, they definitely took care of business. They kind of flew under the radar and yeah, you almost kind of forget that Lamar. I mean, not that you forget about Lamar Jackson, but I feel like, you know, he was like the MVP what was it 2018. And I, I just remember like when Mahomes won the Super Bowl, it's like, okay, the chiefs are going to win 10 straight Super Bowls. Um, and now it's kind of the bills time to shine, but you know, these teams are still going to be there. So, Obviously, they have great coaching, um, and they have solid special teams. You know, like that's going to be a, a baseline positive in almost every game for the Ravens, which I think help help a lot. And you know, and trading for Roquan Smith definitely improves the defense, which didn't need a lot of improvements anyway. Certainly didn't. Uh, last thing before we go to the uh, just the the finish up here with the thoughts on some games this week. What was your initial reaction to Jeff Saturday being announced the head coach out of the blue? Um. I was definitely, I feel like, surprised, just as I'm sure everyone was, just because of, I mean, he, obviously he's a name, and I'm, I feel like of all the centers in the history of the NFL, he's probably one that you could name. I don't know how, I mean, obviously a lot of that is being under center for Peyton Manning, which it is kind of funny, because I was just kind of thinking of someone like Bill Polian. I feel like Peyton Manning has definitely put nudged a lot of players into, like, Hall of Fame consideration, mm-hmm. um, just being around him, almost it's like kind of like the, the Sean McVay effect, where, you know, you, you work under him, and then you get a high coaching job. But yeah, it's just, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know what else to really compare it to. I know there was talks of the Texans wanting to sign Josh McCown as their head coach. Um, in a sense, a little bit maybe when John Lynch was hired as the 49ers GM, just because, I mean, a big name as a player, um, but not that experience. It's an interesting thing just because there's there's only 32 roles. Um, they obviously know football, but how do you really know, you know, the difference between a great coach and, and I feel like it's that experience and there's been situations in well, all sports, um, even like, you know, Robin Ventura or Ryan Sandberg in, in baseball, where it's like you, you want the fan favorite, but that doesn't always necessarily work out uh, making that transition. Or, you know, Michael yeah. Jordan is the GM of the Wizards, or Charlotte, well, I think, right? I, I, yeah, yeah I, I hear that, and I, I agree with, with it. My thing being, look, like, I 
it's been a disaster in a lot of ways for them. The fact that the Colts have just, you know, deteriorated the quarterback situation. Frank Reich was a genius play caller. We thought coming in from Philly, Super Bowl success, and it just hasn't happened. Jeff Saturday having no experience is going to rub people the wrong way, and I understand that. It's the coaching profession, whether you're talking about, you know, obviously with the stuff with the Rooney Rule and minorities getting a chance or just coaching the profession in general, people that work their whole lives and dedicate to the craft and then see somebody with no experience come right in and just get afforded this opportunity. Not to say anything negative about Jeff Saturday, by all accounts a good guy, but seems like an unconventional decision and seems like an out-of-the-box thing. And also... I'll be honest, Adam, it, it kind of seems like it's just a short-term, let's just get through this year move. So I would just kind of bring it all full circle and say, I don't think this is a long-term hire. I think this is a, let's see if we can get through the year with some goodwill. Uh, I don't know if mm-hmm. Jeff Saturday felt like he could even say no to this job based on his relationship to Polian, So, or not Polian, uh, Ursay, I should say. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a messy situation, and uh, it was just odd. The press conference was weird. I don't know what the direction is. Uh, not to say that Saturday can't succeed as a coach, but nobody saw this coming, and it just doesn't really work like that in the NFL, uh, a guy with no experience. So we'll see. Obviously, yeah. he knows the game, but doesn't know coaching. Right, and um, you know, it's interesting, too, because kind of what you said, too, is I don't know if, like, historically, I feel like there's not a ton of situations where that interim coach becomes the full-time head coach of the following season. I mean, you know, like I know Dan Campbell was one where he was an interim coach for the Dolphins and now he's a coach for another team. And so, yeah, you know, it might just kind of be a face. And it's always interesting, like, when a team fires a coach midway through the season because does it really fix anything or is it just kind of a temporary? I mean, I'm, I don't know if it makes a difference if you do it now or in, you know, two months. And uh, and I was also just going to say that even even if you have, you know, coaching experience, I feel like in college or – the CFL with mm-hmm. when the Bears had Mark Tressman. I mean, you know, maybe Pete Carroll is an exception, Jim Harbaugh, but I feel like, you know, there's not a, even if you have a great college experience uh, as a coach, that doesn't necessarily, you know, historically mean that you're going to be great in the NFL as well. As the world turns, uh, we'll see. But all right, Adam Musto looking at some of these NFL games for week 10. Hard to believe we're already at this point. I say that every week, but. Um, interesting ones on the docket, Tampa and Seattle and Germany, <laughs> an interesting uh, game there. We're going all the way to Germany. The Bucks yeah. are slight favorites. Seattle going for seven and three. That is, that would be shocking, but, uh, this has all the, has all the, uh, has all the notions for Brady kind of making a last stand. I will say that Seattle's defense being fun and exciting, uh, gives me mm-hmm. pause there. That's the one I'm looking forward to the most. I would say getting up early for that one. Uh, I know your Bears got the Lions, and uh, my Browns have the Dolphins, and another big one. And uh, you also got Vikings Bills in the late in the uh, one o'clock slate. So maybe that's where we will really see how good the Vikings are if they continue this going. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if that would necessarily be considered a uh, Super Bowl preview, but potentially, you know, it could be. And yeah, to the to the Bucks Seahawks, I feel like just weird things happen in some of the international games. There's upsets. Obviously, there's a history of you know coaches getting fired after a big loss there. Um, but yeah, I think it is a good opportunity for the Seahawks to prove themselves, even though that you know they're playing a team that's under 500. But Geno versus Tom Brady is still you know I think you would still probably think oh Tom Brady has to be favored in that. And I'm not gonna well you know write either one off right. But yeah, definitely an intriguing matchup there as well. And uh, we have. Uh, Chargers 49ers, West Coast battle uh, Sunday night. So that's kind of, you know, maybe those teams kind of figuring out who they are 
but you know, also an interconference game, so not no direct uh, divisional matchups with that one. We have the chance to see the Cowboys just completely complete the burial of the Packers in a big game as well. And uh, Chargers Niners on Sunday night too, a chance for the Niners to get above 500 and maybe the Chargers prove us all wrong. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's kind of interesting slate. I mean, you have, and I feel like this might've been the case last time, but, or just kind of the state of the NFL with the standings, you know, you do have a lot of, not a ton of matchups with teams with, you know, two winning records. But yeah, I feel like there's always going to be upsets, at least, you know, brewing. There, there's always going to be some, you know, when we talk next next week or, you know, or after we've, after the games are played, you know, where there's going to be like, oh, how did that team win? <laughs> always is. Makes it fun. Uh, Adam Musto, pleasure chatting football with you. Uh, last thing, I guess, what was your, uh, you know, reaction to the, to the Astros winning the World Series? You know, weathering the storm of home runs in game three and winning the last three to beat the Phillies. Yeah, it's. Um, I guess they have uh, their fair their share of a big dynasty there. Um, it's crazy, you know. I didn't. Uh, my heart was broken a little bit after uh, both Chicago teams. Well, the Cubs were never really in it, but <laughs> you know, I feel like, and it was interesting too, just because you know the Phillies, the team they won in '08, and um, just how teams build, and you know, sometimes you kind of forget about them for a while. But if you can kind of have that maintain, you know, maintain that success, um, it's very hard to do. I think. We all thought that that would happen with the Cubs, and that obviously didn't materialize after they broke their curse. No, it didn't. Um, but you still got one, and you got it at my expense, so that's all. Yeah, I'm added. sorry. That's like, I, I did not mean to both of those. That's, that's both World <laughs> Series losses brought up on the show. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, that, that was not <laughs> Adam Musto, pleasure as always chatting sports with you. Thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. Thanks to Kent Brown, thanks to Adam Musto, and thanks to all you out there for listening. This podcast, as you know, can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, all your podcast platforms. Search Money Mitch Effect and it will pop right up. And follow me on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. Don't forget to check out the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page. We're back next week. More to talk about in football. We'll try to mix in some hockey as well. Uh, Connor McDavid, Jesus, the New Jersey Devils are on fire as well. All that and more here on the Money Mitch Effect. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep enjoying sports.